So good evening. I trust you're having a good week so far. Thank you for, for coming out tonight. Uh, in our study this evening, I want to consider something about our God that has fallen on hard times. It's quite unpalatable uh, to today's taste. We could say it's one of the dishes of God's attributes that remains relatively untouched at the smorgasbord. Or it's the food from the delicious meal that usually gets left on the plate. So that's what I'd like to talk about. So let's read our text and hopefully you will determine what attribute I'm talking about. So our text is Jeremiah chapter 19 and we're going to read the entire chapter. So Jeremiah chapter 19 reading from verse 1. The word of God says, Thus saith the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen bottle. And take of the ancients, the people, and of the ancients, the priests. And go forth unto the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate. And proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, the kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle. Because they have forgotten me and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also the high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of them that seek their lives. And their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate and in hissing, Every one that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of the plagues thereof. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. They shall eat every one the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. Then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee. And shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break the people and this city. As one breaketh a potter's vessel, that cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet, until there be no place to bury. Thus will I do unto this place, saith the Lord, and to the inhabitants thereof, and even make the city as Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses of the kings of Judah, shall be defiled as the place of Tophet, because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto the host of heaven. And have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. Then came Jeremiah from Tephat, whither the Lord had sent him to prophecy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house, and said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city, upon all her towns, all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us tonight uh, to get a fresh glimpse of your glorious person. Help us to grow uh, in our knowledge of who you are, and may our love for you increase as a result. 
We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. On July 8, 1741, uh, in Ironfield, Connecticut, one of the most famous sermons outside of the Bible in all of history was preached. And it was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, very famous theologian and preacher. This was actually the second time that he preached the sermon. But the impact on this particular occasion is impossible to quantify both the immediate effect and the ongoing effect. You know, I'm sure Edwards would not have expected this sermon to still be discussed, read, studied and preached some 280 years later. You can buy a copy of this sermon from Curon. Uh, Billy Graham preached this sermon. I, I know one famous preacher in the US preached this sermon recently. Okay, so it is ongoing. And then even the immediate impact of this sermon. Okay, it's true preachers need to believe in the power of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, preachers don't expect every sermon to be the catalyst of widespread revival. Uh, I used to get told, Brennan, you won't hit a home run every single time. Sometimes you've got to be content with a single. And yet, the impact of this particular sermon is huge. The particular church that he preached it in, it was a church that was hard. It had been resilient to what is called the first great awakening. But this particular sermon was used mightily by the Lord. It was the dynamite that blasted open the hard hearts of those that filled the pew. This sermon was an instrument used by the Lord to give spiritual sight. It was light piercing through the darkness, just like the sun rising at dawn. It grabbed hold of people in astonishing ways. And our one tradition says that the sermon wasn't able to be finished. Such was the crying and weeping within the church. Now here are a couple of snippets from this famous sermon. If you know anything about Edwards, he was brilliant with metaphors and uses very colorful imagery. And these are in your outline. He says this. This is quote one. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. Quote number two, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose. And then the third snippet. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God. And that of an angry God. Without any promise or obligation at all. That keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. That's very graphic. That's very direct, and it was used by the Lord in astonishing ways. Now, as I was reading through this sermon, I couldn't help but to think, 
Imagine if a sermon like that was preached today. And uh, imagine if the media got hold of it. You'd, you know, they'd be all over that like a rash. They'd be calling you hate speech and bigoted and all kinds of other nasty names. And I think even many within the church would find this completely unpalatable. And no doubt many would want to distance themselves from such a sermon. Because any talk of God's wrath and judgment is not a popular topic. Okay, this is one of the dishes of God's attributes that remain relatively untouched on the smorgasbord. It's quite unpalatable. And yet, we need to understand God is just as wrathful as he is loving, merciful, and gracious. In fact, without wrath, without judgment, love, mercy, and grace are robbed of much of their infinite value, and God's glory is dramatically shrunken. Okay, we can't diminish and explain away something about God that the Bible speaks so much about throughout the entire narrative. It talks about this from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, we see that God is angry with sin, and he will pour out his judgments. Okay, this is who God is. And this is very clear in our text, which is another famous sermon. And what's interesting is that it could very easily use the same title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what I'd like to do is work our way through the text, examining the particulars of the historical situation and the sermon itself, and then draw out what this has to teach you and I about God's wrath and consider why this matters. So that's the plan. So let's get into the text. Can we see in verse 1 that Jeremiah is instructed by the Lord not to watch the potter this time, and that's what we saw last week, but rather purchase a piece of pottery, and this would become the next object, object lesson. Okay, so he makes his way down to the pottery shop. Perhaps it was the same potter that he was watching in the previous chapter. But this time he went and he bought a bottle just as God had promised. This clay jar was used to carry water or wine. It was like a flask, so it had a wide bottom and then it had a narrow neck. And it usually had a handle to help with pouring the water. Now, the Hebrew term translated bottle is bach book, okay? and it's believed to be an onomatopoeic word. So it was named after the gurgling sound that the swirling water made as it poured out the narrow opening. If perhaps you can picture that. So having purchased this jar, this bottle, Jeremiah gathered the elders. Okay, this is what is meant by the term ancients in verse 1. I think elders is a much better word than ancients. Uh, it makes you feel very old if you're an elder in a church and you're called the ancients. Okay, so they, these are referring to the elders or the leaders of the people and the priests. So the religious leaders and the political authorities. So they are the representative of the whole nation. They are important people. And Jeremiah was to lead them to the valley of the son of Hinnom. And this was through the east gate. Now the term east literally means potsherd. 
Okay, so the, the Valley of Hinnom, this was the city rubbish dump. So here the rubbish would be thrown and would be left to burn. And the, the potsherd gate seems to be where all the broken pottery was discarded. So they walked past all of these broken vessels into the local dump. Now, let's try and picture this scene. Let's try and engage our imaginations. All of these important people, we've got the diplomats, we've got the religious folk, they've got you know, all of their long flowing garments, their religious garb, okay, the important people in town. And the prophet takes them to the dump, takes them to the local tip. The smell is foul, the sight is sickly, the flies are thick, and you can imagine all of them thinking, why has he brought us to the dump? Why, why, why are we here? This is a very bizarre location. Now, furthermore, I'm not sure how the prophet convinced these important people to come to the dump. Have you ever thought about that? Imagine trying to convince some important officials to meet us at our local dump. But that would be pretty hard to sell. And yet somehow Jeremiah managed this. Well, it's been suggested that you know, these folk were after evidence to, to convict him and then try him. That, that could be true. But, but the text is clear that the local garbage dumping ground was the scene of the sermon. Not very picturesque. And the local officials were the congregation. And Jeremiah is holding this back book as he preaches. So quite the interesting scene. So with the setting in mind, that, that's what the first two verses covered. The sermon is then shared. And verses 3 to 9 function like a legal case. It gives irrefutable evidence establishing the guilt of the people. Now again, it's important to identify in verse 3, this is from the Lord. Okay, this is not merely Jeremiah's perception. That this is not what he thinks about the people. But this is the infallible evidence presented by the divine lawyer. And this is actually stressed twice in verse 3. It says, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So this is straight from the mouth of God. A Chinese whispers hadn't been played to distort this message. This is God's personal words. Now the final phrase of verse 3, this states that the big idea or the central theme of this sermon says, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. It's all about judgment. It's all about wrath. And so extreme will this judgment be that people's ears will tingle. Now have you ever heard something so horrifying that it instantly sends a shiver down your spine? That, that's the sense. This is serious. Okay, and instantly evidence is given to prove the necessity of this judgment. Okay, evidence is given to establish their guilt. And verses 4 and 5 paint a very dark and depraved picture that they had forsaken the Lord. Okay, that they wanted nothing to do with Him. He, he meant nothing to them. That they rejected the covenant relationship. And we're told they have estranged this place literally alienated this place. Okay, the place seems to be the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And such was their corruption, such was the pollution that they had paganized the temple and the holy city. Okay, it was the opposite to what God had demanded. 
And this is most vividly confirmed by the practice of child sacrifice. This is a most despicable and deplorable action. Yeah, and understand this has never been instructed by the Lord. Okay, verse 5 is actually very emphatic. Okay, this has never entered the Lord's mind. Okay, he's never asked for such a thing. He never would ask for such a thing because this is inconsistent with who God is. Okay, our God is not one who demands the lives of infants as an atoning sacrifice, but rather he gave his life as the atoning sacrifice. So what they were doing was repulsive in the sight of God. And hence his wrath was about to be unleashed. It, it had been building up behind the damn walls, but the gates were about to be opened because of the people's wickedness. And verses 6 to 9 unpack the judgment. And, and it's not pretty. Now verse 6 tells us that where they were standing would become known as the valley of slaughter. The ground that they stood in would become a river of blood. And such would be the totality of judgment. And notice throughout that the Lord takes responsibility. Okay, he says in verse 7, I will make void. I will cause them to fall. Verse 8, I will make the city desolate. Verse 9, I will. Okay, this is from the Lord. Ba Babylon was merely an instrument. Okay, and just in case this wasn't sinking in, an object lesson was then used by Jeremiah. Okay, that this is why he had brought this jug. Okay, it was purchased and it was to be thrown to the ground. Okay, and then it would smash to pieces. Now again, let's try and engage our imaginations. Okay, Jeremiah is he's preaching away and his judgment, judgment, judgment. That's not surprising. That's what he always preaches on. But then he, he lifts up the pot above his head and then he throws it to the ground. Can, can you hear the smashing? Can, can you see that the fragments flying? Maybe a piece or two hit some of the leaders. But surely this grabbed their attention. Okay, this was not normal. Now I thought about reenacting it tonight just to show you that it's not normal. And I'm sure it would wake you up, but I didn't want to clean up the mess. And also, then I thought, well, maybe I can get you all to the local dump and I could do it there. But I thought that would probably not happen either. So got to use your imagination okay and here in this scene i'm sure this must have got their attention it was and it was a vivid illustration of what was going to happen to them they were going to be smashed to pieces that the city would literally be smashed and the walls would be torn down the gates destroyed and the people would be torn apart okay look at verse 11 this gives the explanation even so will i break this people and this city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. This is a very graphic and scary lesson, very confronting. Okay. And the difference here is that the chance of repentance had now passed. Okay. That boat had sailed, that there is no mention of repentance. Okay. In the previous chapter, where the clay was still on the wheel, things could change. But once it was off the wheel, once it was heated, okay, it couldn't change, it could only be shattered. And it was this that awaited the people. But I'm not sure how the elders responded. I'm very confident that there wasn't much support. You know, this wasn't a preach it brother moment or thank you pastor for the message. 
It seems that they turned their back and they left swiftly. Perhaps there was mocking, perhaps there was scoffing. That wouldn't be surprising. But what we do know for sure is what Jeremiah did next. And I want you to understand, this shows astonishing courage. In verses 14 and 15, he went to the temple. He went to the place where everybody hates him. The hostile crowd, and he preaches the same message. Now, this would be like going into a mosque in the Middle East, okay, let's say Saudi Arabia, and you preach against Islam. Man, that, that's courageous. Very likely, you're going to be beaten and killed. Jeremiah faced the same situation. And yet he was courageous in sharing the message. And in the next chapter, we see that there was consequences for sharing his message. But this is no doubt a sermon that was not quickly forgotten. And and surely when judgment did fall, this sermon and its object lesson must have swept through their minds. It must have shattered them internally and they had that shattering realization, oh no, Jeremiah is right. Everything's going to come to pass. God was judging and it was too late. That they had ignored the warning sign and now it was inescapable. They were sinners in the hands of an angry God. So what can we learn about God's judgment and his wrath from this account? And why does it matter? Well, when we're talking about God's wrath, it's important to define it. Often when we're seeking to understand who God is and what he's like, we often project our human sense of the virtue onto God. Okay, so we're talking about God is love. So we have what we think love looks like, we project it to God. When we think about God is wrath, okay, we think about what anger and wrath looks like from a human perspective and project that onto him. So when we think of wrath, we think of human anger. Human anger is usually uncontrolled, unpredictable, vengeful, can often result in harsh, brutal, and unfair treatment of others. But that's not the case with God. God's wrath means that he intensely hates sin and he must deal with it. And understand, his wrath is linked inseparably with all of his attributes. But we could say that wrath is very closely linked to God's holiness. Okay, his holiness means his utter separateness and his purity. And it's also linked to his justice, meaning he must do what is right. And both qualities help us to comprehend God's wrath. One writer gives this definition, and this is in your outline. Wrath, in perfect harmony with all his attributes, is God's holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. So that, that is what is meant by this attribute. So let's consider what the text says about this quality, which will help us understand it more deeply. So number one is the reality of God's wrath and judgment. Now, this is stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. 
And this is certainly true in such a situation because so many today deny the reality of God's wrath and judgment. Okay, God's a God of love. God is a God of grace. Okay, he, he can't judge. He can't get angry at sin. But that's not the message of our text. And that's not the message of the Bible. It's interesting in this sermon that God makes it clear that he's the judging agent. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't seek to blame somebody else. He, he doesn't pass the buck. But rather, it was planned and it was executed by him. Notice verse 3. It says, I will bring evil upon this place. God takes full responsibility. This is also seen in verses 7 to 9. Okay, we've looked at this already. God says, I will, I will, I will. So this clearly establishes the reality of God's wrath. And he has no qualms in being known as the God who will judge. Now, a common objection, and perhaps you've heard this, maybe this is what you believe. Okay, it goes like this. The, the Old Testament God, he's angry. He's vengeful. He's full of wrath. Okay, he's hellfire and brimstone. But Jesus changed that. Okay, the, the, the New Testament is completely different. Okay, this is a common perception. But to that, I would say, really? Are you sure? Now, I don't want to be condescending, but, but that thinking reveals a lack of understanding of both theology and the Bible. Because such rationale puts God the Father and God the Son against each other. Okay, it views them like they're different gods. Okay, so there we have Trinitarian error and we have Unitarian error. Yeah, because God the Father and God the Son, along with the Spirit, they're one God. And they are the same. And God doesn't change. That's one of his attributes. It's called immutability. Okay, so, so that poses all kinds of problems for this supposed dichotomy of gods. Now we also need to read the New Testament. Do you know who taught more on hell than anyone else? Actually, Jesus. Okay, Jesus taught on hell more than anyone else furthermore read the book of revelation there's a little bit of wrath and a little bit of judgment to be found there romans 1 talks about god's wrath first thessalonians 1:10 talks about being delivered from god's wrath to come john 3:36 says he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth on him so anyone for all time who doesn't believe on the Son has the wrath of God hovering over him or her. Okay, so the Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, the reality of God's wrath is confirmed consistently and continuously. Okay, this is not the only thing that the Bible says about God, but it's undeniable that this is an attribute of God and that is consistent with both the Old Testament and the new. Number two, the justice of God's wrath and judgment. You know, one theologian said this, and I believe it's very helpful. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction 
to objective moral evil. Okay, so God is not some angry man who loves to rain down fire and brimstone for no apparent reason. He's not like that abusive family member who you just never know when they might explode in anger and then lash out. God's not like that. Because when he unleashes his wrath, it's always just. It's always appropriate. It's always punishing evil. And our text illustrates that well. Okay, this judgment that would be unleashed, it's, it's horrifying. It's, it's gruesome. That the sword would destroy swiftly. There's rivers of blood, piles of bodies. The wild beasts would feast on corpses and we even read that people would end up eating their loved ones. But man, that, that's horrifying. Okay, but the people were guilty. Okay, the, the Lord outlines their covenantal unfaithfulness. They had broken the covenant. Okay, re- remember they had agreed, they had shook hands, they had signed the contract. If they were faithful, God would bless them. If they were unfaithful, God would curse them. Okay, that, that was the covenantal agreement. And they had been incredibly unfaithful. And this wasn't just for a short period of time, but this is years and years and years. That This is generational unfaithfulness. They had forsaken the Lord. That they were worshipping other gods. And understand that this is widespread. See in verse 13, it talks about pagan practices on the roofs of homes. Okay, widespread. And they were even offering their children as sacrifices. Great was the wickedness. Their unfaithfulness was a hideous stench to the Lord and it needed to be dealt with accordingly. And any such judgment, any wrath was just considering what the people had done. The Lord has never, nor will he ever, unleash unjust wrath. I want to pause for a moment and, and ponder this point and seek to illustrate it. If you were in court and a loved one of yours had been murdered and the evidence, it it was damning, there was no way to deny it. In fact, the criminal actually pleaded guilty. And what the case ended up being about was how long should he be imprisoned? Had the lawyers bounced backwards and forwards for a couple of weeks? And then the time come for the judge to make his pronouncement. And this is what he said. He said, since I'm a loving and gracious guy, I'm going to let the murderer walk free. No punishment. How would that make you feel? Is that love? Well, no, it's not. It's called injustice. It's called incorruption. Okay? Sorry, it's called corruption. And this is the same with God. He would be unjust if he never judged sin. If he didn't possess wrath, he would be a greatly diminished God because he would never deal with sin. He would never right wrongs. Justice would never be served. God needs to unleash wrath to be just and his wrath is always just. Number three, God's wrath and judgment are never disconnected from his other attributes. It's important for us to understand that God is not made up of parts. He's not 40% love, 5% wrath, 
and the rest of the attributes fill in the remaining portion of the pie. That's an in- incorrect way to think about God. Okay, God is not more of one quality than he is another. Okay, and all of these attributes go together. So it is a loving wrath, a holy wrath, a just wrath, a, a righteous judgment. Okay, so his wrath and his judgment, they don't exist in isolation. Okay, and this is seen in our text. It, it's implied rather than directly stated, but I trust you can see the point that I'm endeavoring to make. So there's something missing uh, in our text, and that's the opportunity to repent. It's not there. In fact, verse 11 says, I break this people and this city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. Cannot be made whole again. That there is no chance of averting this judgment. But this is different to the previous messages of judgment. Because even in the last chapter, there was a chance to repent. And this had been Jeremiah's whole ministry. Repent, repent, repent. And here's the point. God had been long-suffering. God had been patient. And this is always the case with God's wrath. He's not hasty. He's not premature in unleashing it. But rather he warns people. He's gracious in giving time. He is long-suffering in holding back his wrath. So there we see how wrath is not disconnected from the other attributes, but in harmony with them. And this is the case for all of God's attributes. They don't and they can't contradict each other, nor are they disconnected. And this is important for us to understand when it comes to God's wrath and judgment. And this connection is seen ultimately in that God has provided a way for us to be spared from his wrath. And that, my friend, is astonishing. Okay, Because in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he has made it possible for his justice to be satisfied and for us to avoid receiving the judgment that we deserve. Because understand, as sinners, okay, we've rebelled against God, we've rejected him, we deserve God's wrath. And that's a fearful thing. Fearful thing. We deserve judgment for all eternity. As sinners... We deserve to be in the hands of an angry God. But as Christians, this is no longer the case. Because God permitted himself to be in the hands of angry sinners. Isn't that astonishing? That's the cross. That's the gospel. Jesus on the cross had the wrath of God poured out upon him. He was punished in our place. And now God can be both just and the justifier. He can save us because our sins have been paid for by another. The cross is all about God's judgment and wrath. Without it, it doesn't make sense. So you praise the Lord that Jesus bore it all in our place. And at the cross we see all the glorious attributes of God displayed in perfect harmony. So this is a a basic run-through of the wrath and judgment of God. Okay, the, the Bible is very clear that this is an attribute of God. But how should we respond? And how, how does this impact our lives? Okay, three quick points that I'd like to close with. Okay, number one, it should govern and motivate our evangelism. Now, when we share the gospel, we need to include the part that man has sinned 
and God's going to judge sin. Okay, mankind needs to understand their predicament. Now, I don't think this needs to be the primary emphasis, but it does need to be included. Because what does conversion include? Conversion includes repentance. There's no repentance, it's not conversion. What's repentance? Repentance is turning from sin. To turn from sin, you need to realize you are a sinner. Okay, people need to understand the bad news before they see the good in the good news. People need to know they're lost before they understand they need to be found. Someone needs to know they're sick before they'll take the medicine. Okay, we can't skip this part when we're sharing the gospel. But furthermore, that the reality of God's wrath and the fact that it will be unleashed on all who don't know Christ, that ought to motivate us to share the gospel if we have any sort of concern toward our fellow men. Okay, if we truly believe this, okay, if we believe the Bible and we have any kind of decency, surely we would tell others about Jesus. Okay, the reality of hell ought to fuel our evangelistic zeal. Number two, it should cause us to praise the Lord. Now that may be a little bit surprising, isn't it? Really? Wrath, a source of praise. But think about it. What would God be like if he didn't judge sin? What would God be like if he didn't hate sin? If wrath wasn't the response? Okay, that, that would need to mean that God either delights in sin, or at least be completely unmoved by it. And I don't know about you, but that God is not worthy of worship. I don't want to worship a God who delights in or, or is unmoved by murder, rape, or terrorism. What kind of God is that? So we should praise him that he hates sin and that he deals with it. Furthermore, we can praise him because it means that justice will be served. God will right all wrongs. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in this life, but there's a time coming when all the injustice of this world and the pit of injustice is very, very deep, but it will be made right. Our God's character demands that, and that should cause us to praise him. He is the just God, and he will do what is right, and one day he will rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be free from all unrighteousness and all injustice. And we should also praise him for his patience with us. His, his wrath was hanging over our heads. That, that's what we deserve as sinners. And yet he was patient. He, he gave us the time and the opportunity to embrace Christ as Savior. And now we're spared from the wrath that we deserve. And that's certainly an endless supply of praise material. So God's wrath and judgment should cause us to praise and glorify him. And then number three, for the Christian, we never need to fear God's wrath. The unsaved should be terrified of God's wrath. They, they, they should be crippled with fear. Because it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. But for the Christian, we never need to fear God's wrath. Why? 
Jesus has taken every last drop of it in our place. There's no more wrath left for us to take. It's not that Jesus took half and we have to take half. It's not even that Jesus took 99% and we have to take 1%. Jesus took it all. Nothing left for us to take. And for the Christian now, God's disposition toward us is positive. It's one of delight, love, and joy. We are his children. And now, we don't need to fear as sinners in the hands of an angry God, but delight at being children in the hands of a loving God. And that is ours all because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for who you are. You are a great God. And I thank you that you are holy, you are just, you are righteous, and that you will deal with sin. And we, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for being punished in our place, for bearing that the wrath of God and satisfying God's requirements all in our behalf. That, that is astonishing. And I do pray uh, that this would uh, increase uh, our love and delight uh, in you. Help us to be diligent in meditating uh, on what we have learnt uh, from your word. And may that be uh, burnt into, into our lives. May it, may it change us. Lord, please uh, keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name.